If you have a copy of God's Word, turn in the Scriptures to the book of Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon this morning. Great singing this morning. And the choir always have been a blessing. It's been a real encouragement, especially at the start of our service, to have our minds lifted heavenward by the choir. And a few others have joined in recent days, and they just seem to be adding to the richness of the praise that comes from the choir. And we're very thankful for that ministry and the encouragement and the work of Dr. Overly. Song of Solomon, chapter 7. you know where Isaiah is and you work back from there, you come straight to the book of Song of Solomon. <clears throat> and we are coming for the first time into chapter 7, and we want, by the Lord's help, to, to look at the opening nine verses. For those that don't know, we've been going through the Song of Solomon as we come to the Lord's table. And so with the table set before us, then we prepare our minds and hearts by looking at this particular part of God's revelation, which reminds us so much of the communion we have with Christ and His love for us, His people, the church. So let's read the opening verses of chapter 7 and pay attention to the Word of the Lord as we read it. How beautiful are thy feet with shoes, O prince's daughter! The joints of thy thighs are like jewels, the work of the hands of a cunning workman. Thy navel is like a round goblet, which wanteth not liquor. Thy belly is like an heap of wheat set about with the lilies. Thy two breasts are like the two young rows that are twins. Thy neck is as a tower of ivory. Thine eyes like the fish poles in Heshbon by the gate of Bath-Rabim. Thy nose is as the tower of Lebanon, which looketh toward Damascus. Thine head upon thee is like Carmel, and the hair of thine head like purple, the king is held in the galleries. How fair and how pleasant art thou, O love for delights! This thy stature is like to a palm tree, and thy breast to clusters of grapes. I said, I will go up to the palm tree, I will take hold of the boughs thereof. Thy also thy breast shall be as clusters of the vine, and the smell of thy nose like apples and the roof of thy mouth like the best wine for my beloved that goeth down sweetly, causing the lips of those that are asleep to speak. Amen. And the Lord bless the Word and give us light therein this morning. Let's pray. Let's look to Him particularly for this, this period where we open up His Word. We want to hear from the Lord Himself and have Him break the bread of life to us. Lord, we pray for help in this season. We ask that this word would contribute to the sense of communion that we enjoy at thy table in just a matter of minutes. When we will come and sit at the table and anticipate Christ to sit with us and to manifest himself to us. Oh God, we, we are so desperate to see Christ and to love him and to understand our completeness in him. So we pray that by the merit of the blood of Christ, by the cross work of thy Son, thou wilt command blessings upon thy church today. Give each of us understanding in thy word. Enrich us in Christ, who he is and what he has done. 
May our love expand and extend. May we know the wonder of the fact that our God speaks with men. He speaks as a friend does with a friend through the mediator, Jesus Christ. May we know then help. Fill me with thy spirit. Grant me that unction of the Holy Ghost. May we know just the Lord himself commanding blessings upon Zion in this place today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The other week, as many of you know, we had the joy of participating in a wedding. And in bringing the Word of God to that couple and to the congregation assembled there for the marriage of Joshua Mooney and what uh, Bonnie Rowe, I was going to say, I wasn't sure Bonnie Rowe, but Bonnie Mooney as she is now, but the marriage of this lovely couple, I, I reminded, particularly for the sake of Josh, the truth that is found in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 5. In that portion, we have these words. In the law of God, we are told, When a man hath taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war, neither shall he be charged with any business. But he shall be free at home one year, and shall cheer up his wife, which he hath taken. The idea of that text is not to suggest that he stops working altogether, he abandons all his responsibilities, except that he might stay at home all day long with his wife. That's not the idea but that the entire community, the nation, those that he lives among, will not call him to do particular acts and added responsibilities that normally he would be called upon to do, going to war, charged with business, responsibilities within the community. He is to minimize, minimize as much as is possible his responsibilities beyond the home Yes, he has to work. Yes, he has to provide. But he ought to minimize, especially in that first year, in order that he might cheer up his wife, which he hath taken. Now, there are all sorts of reasons as to why this might be. Often the wife feels that sense of disconnectedness from her family. She will sorrow. She will have an adjustment that she feels far more keenly than he does. And so there's that need to be comforted and cheered as you adjust to new life, a a new head, a new leader, someone to submit to that's entirely different, the different ways and manners of your husband in comparison to the family you once lived with. And there are other reasons as well. He has to learn her. He has to understand, dwell with her according to knowledge, understand the quirks and features of, of his wife so that he might be able to better understand her ways and manner so that he might cheer up his wife, which he hath taken. The first year is important. And there are wonderful applications in relation to this. I don't have Scripture to draw this out, but it has been my observation. I'm sure many of you can uh, agree with it as well, that when you come to know Christ, especially when you're a little later on in life, you're a mature adult, and you're saved from your sin, that first year is particularly special. It's like there's added joy in the understanding of what Christ has done for you. And it's as if He he has come to cheer up your soul in a particular fashion that is even distinct from the continuing cheer that He will bring to your life throughout your existence and your service for Him as a child of God. But the point, really, that we can certainly draw from that text is that he will endeavor to cheer up his bride. Christ cheers his bride. 
He wants to cheer his bride. He condescends to cheer his bride. And that's the example for all fathers here, for all husbands here this morning to, to learn of his example. He does endeavor to cheer his bride. He does endeavor to, to feel that weight of responsibility. She's not just there to, to help keep the home, but, and he's kind of living this distant existence from her. He has this responsi- responsibility. Cheer her. Cheer her up. Bring cheer to her life. And so you begin with a concentrated effort for a year, but the ongoing responsibility does not end after that year. We continue then with this need to cheer our bride. And Christ does that. He does that. Have you felt the cheer of praising His name this morning? Have you? Has He ministered by His Spirit to your soul already to cheer you? With the particular purpose of cheering you? I mean, this, this is the joy of the house of the Lord, that we, we gather together with those of like precious faith, and we sing our praises to the living God, and Christ comes, and He commands blessings, and part of that blessing is to cheer our hearts. We get so downcast by our sin, a sense of disappointment at our disobedience, and rightly so. But we come here, and Christ reminds us, complete, complete in Him. No work of ours. Nothing to do with you. Your completeness is in Christ. Does that not cheer the heart? It ought to. Justified, sanctified, and one day glorified is the assurance given to the people of God. And this cheers us. It's all cheering our hearts. Christ endeavors to cheer us. And He, in this very passage shows his delight in the bride, how he reflects upon her and his desire for her. And so, this morning, I've entitled the message simply, Describing the Prince's Daughter. Describing the Prince's Daughter, as we have it here in verses 1 through 9. And I trust the Lord will will help us to understand this text to our prophet as we sit and commune with Christ in his word and at his table at the end of the message. Note with me, first of all, there is a description of her beauty. There is a description of her beauty. The opening five or six verses are dealing with the beauty that she has, and he endeavors then to describe this. And I want to note a few things here. First, the completeness of it. The completeness of it. How beautiful are thy feet with shoes, the joints of thy thighs. You have her navel mentioned, you have her belly mentioned, her breast mentioned, her neck, and so on and so forth. It is all mentioned here. He gives this description of her. And in this, he takes time to notice the particular beauties, the features of the various aspects of her stature. And it is evident that he delights in all those features. Now, I'm not going to break down each one of them. I'm not going to dissect everything that's said here concerning each aspect that is mentioned. But simply to just urge upon you this, this, this observation of Christ, this, this looking upon her and describing her in this way is how the Lord takes delight in her. What's interesting is that, as noted by a number of the commentators He begins here with her feet and moves towards her head. So you look at verse 1, how beautiful are thy feet with shoes or with sandals. And then verse 5, thine head upon thee is like caramel, the hair of thine head like purple. And so you have this moving from the feet to the head. 
Of course, this was different whenever uh, she was describing him back in chapter 5. If you go to chapter 5, verse uh, 11, and she's describing him, she begins with his head. His head is as the most fine gold, his locks, and on and on goes down to verse 15. His legs are as pillars of marble, and so on and so forth. So she begins with his head and moves downwards. He begins here at her feet and moves upwards. And there's another passage where you have a similar kind of description given in relation to the Lord's people. You find that in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 6, but the language is not so pleasant. Quite, quite the opposite. Israel is turning from the Lord, living in sin, rebelling against God, and the prophets raised up to warn them of the consequences of their rebellion. And the description then given to her on that occasion in verse 6 of chapter 1, from the sole of the foot even unto the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. So there you see the stature of Israel, of, the, of those that are the visible body of the Lord's people described in these, these, this language of ugliness and, and wounds and, and afflictions that have come and are oozing out of her. That is how she's described. But here it is different. Here he remarks on her beauty. And from her feet to her head there is beauty. It's nothing but what is beautiful, what is delightful, what is pleasant. Of course, the difference here is that she is in union with the bridegroom. She is found in him. She is complete in him. As we have reflected all the time through this, her beauty is an imputed beauty. Her beauty is that which has been given to her by reason of her relationship to him. Her beauty is one that has been gifted to her. And so here as he remarks upon her beauty, he sees essentially in her what comes from him. And of course, God, God and the Trinity of His persons, there His, his attributes, is, that's the, the perfect completeness it is what we see in God. Everything that is perfect is found in God. And if anything else is going to, to, to draw out the affection of the Redeemer so that He delights in it, it has to be that which comes first from Him. So he sees these characteristics of beauty that she has been blessed with because of her relationship to him. The completeness of it, from the feet to the head, the entire stature is renewed. It has received the ointment of the gospel, the blessing of union with Christ. That is her blessing to enjoy and his delight. But also, not only the completeness of it, the reason for it. Why is it so? We want to think a little more of this. Why is it so that she is so beautiful? And there are a number of things to hear, see here. First of all, verse 1, where he, she is described as the prince's daughter. The prince's daughter. This is a title for the church. She is the prince's daughter. This is similar to Psalm 45, which we have referred to on many occasions because of the similarity of Psalm 45 and Song of Solomon. And in verse 13 of Psalm 45, we're told the king's daughter is all glorious within. It's a psalm of the church, a psalm of her beauty, a psalm of the bride. And so her beauty is described there as well. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is of wrought gold. And note the description there. It is both within and without. She is all glorious within. It's not just a sham. It's not just an outward form of religion. Yes, her clothing is beautiful. It is wrought of gold. 
But again, that has come from her king. That has come by reason of her relationship to the king, that she has the garments of the king. Garments weaved out by Christ. The garments worked out by his obedience to the law. And that which then is freely gifted to those who trust in him, that is the garment she wears, and it is gold. But she is worked upon within. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Such is the work of the Spirit of God upon her life. So she is the king's daughter. She is the prince's daughter. But we were not always so, were we? There's no one here this morning that was born as the prince's daughter. You were not. And if you imagine that you were born as the prince's daughter, you need to think more clearly about what the Bible teaches. As the Apostle Paul addresses the church at Ephesus, he tells them clearly that we were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. By nature, the children of wrath. Children under judgment. Children under condemnation. Children separated from God. Children without God and without hope in this world. That was where we were. And so there's been this miraculous transaction whereby through the new birth, through Christ's work in the heart, the Spirit regenerating, giving grace to repent and believe the gospel, we are not kept as children of wrath. We don't stand there. He, he, he translates us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. Everyone here that's a Christian has that testimony. You're saved. You have been washed. You have been redeemed. You, you know that there's been something that has taken place. We're not always able to pinpoint the precise time at which that occurs. We're not always able to, to do that. And in one sense, that's a comfort because... We would always know it's us if it's us doing the work. But the work is the Lord's. And we don't always discern precisely when He has accomplished that work. But I'll tell you, it becomes very evident very quickly. You begin to see changing desires, ambitions, longings. You begin to realize that something's been done in your life. You have an interest in things. Whereas before, you had no interest in those things. And you love Christ. You want to serve Christ. You want to be with Christ's people. You want to be here this morning. Why? Why? There, there are millions. The last place on earth they'd want to be is here. Especially with a preacher like this. You don't want to be here. Why do you want to be here? Is it not at least one evidence of the work of the Spirit in your life? You're now part of a royal line. You're the prince's daughter. And this is amazing because only Christ feels this way, really, about the bride. It is not that she is so beautiful or her beauty is so evident that everyone would love and admire her in this way. Turn for a moment to Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11. And here we have the children of Israel in the wilderness, Moses, the mediator before them, and the many responsibilities this dear man of God had. But, but he was, he was, he was Christ-like in many ways. He had many features that evidenced remarkable grace. As mediator before the people, his ability, his, his, his rather privilege to, to stand before God and speak with Him. The meekest man on all the earth. These are 
certainly remarkable things about him, but I want you to note looking there at verse, we'll read from verse 10. Numbers 11, verse 10. Then Moses heard the people weep throughout their families, every man in the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly. Moses also was displeased. Now the Lord has reason to be angry with his people and has reason to, to reflect that anger towards them. But, but here, here's the interesting thing. Moses also was displeased. And Moses said unto the Lord, Wherefore hast thou afflicted thy servant? And wherefore have I not found favor in thy sight, that thou layest the burden of all this people upon me? Have I conceived all this people? Have I begotten them, that thou shouldest say unto me, Carry them in thy bosom, as a nursing father beareth the sucking child unto the land which thou swearest unto their fathers? When should I have flesh to give unto all this people? For they weep unto me, saying, Give us flesh that we may eat. I am not able to bear all this people alone, because it is too heavy for me, and so on and so forth. The point that stood out to me here is that Moses is unable to see a motivation to carry on with this people. Their ugliness is easy for him to note, and something of his motivation to to bear them along diminishes. That is never the case with the Lord. Oh, he may be grieved at his people and have good reason to be grieved at them, but Christ continues to see the beauty of his people even amidst their faults and their failures, even amidst their sins. He continues to see them because the beauty that they have is not a beauty that they have created of their own. Go back again to Song of Solomon chapter 7. I want you to see this further. I want you to note here again the reason for the beauty. And it isn't just that she is now described as the prince's daughter. Something has happened there. A change of relationship has occurred. But there's something else noted in verse 1. The work of the hands of a cunning man or a skillful man. There's something that's happened to her. She is the work or the product of some man of skill that is working upon her. And so while there has been this immediate change in terms of her relationship, and there you have her justification, she is brought in, she is now the prince's daughter, but, but he continues to work upon her. He is as a skillful person working upon her with his hands, changing her more and more. This workman, of course, is none other than Christ. By His Spirit, He works upon us. We're told in Ephesians 2 verse 10, We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. We are His workmanship. He he is working on you, believer. He is constantly working on you. With the hands of a cunning workman, he he works upon your life. He knows exactly what he's doing, and so he has an objective in mind. Remember that. Remember that in seasons of affliction, in seasons where you're knowing the discipline of the Lord. Remember, remember that he has an objective. And the objective isn't the mere suffering or affliction of the outward forces that come into your life. The objective is what he is accomplishing in you. He is a cunning workman. There's a piece of wood. There's, there's something there that he is working with, a jewel or whatever it might be. He is working there. And so there's outside pressure. Certain tools are brought. Certain experiences that impress or touch upon that particular object, that piece of wood, that jewel. It comes upon, but the objective isn't merely to bring that outward force. 
upon. There's something else that's going on, some goal, some vision in his mind of the finished product. And so Christ, Christ is this cunning workman. And our beauty then is, is in part what he is doing in her life. He is working in your life, Christian. He is. Constantly working in your life. And this, this is the reason then that he gets to stand back and admire the product of his own work. And we lament... We do lament, rightly so, our sins. And we ought to. But is there not reason also for joy? Because the sins we are battling with today are distinct from the sins we perhaps battled with in yesteryear. We have gained a measure of victory. Not absolute. They may raise their head. They may crush us again. But is there not a change? Has He not been teaching you things whereby you are distinct from what you were a number of years ago? This is the work of Christ. And then note also Christ's enjoyment of it. We have seen here in relation to describing our beauty, the completeness of it, the reason for it. Note also His enjoyment of it. Verse 6. He describes her in all the ways that we have, you, you read there in those opening five verses. And then He says, How fair and how pleasant art thou, O love, for delights. He is captivated. He is captivated. This is an expression of someone that's captivated. How fair! The word fair is found in other places. You'll find it again in Psalm 45 that we already referred to that's so paired with the Song of Solomon where there you find thou art fairer than the children of men. So this is her distinction. She is distinct from other individuals. She's not like other individuals. How fair and how pleasant art thou. You're, you're not like the children of men. You also have it in God's description of Israel in Ezekiel chapter 16. I would, I would love to take time to turn there, but I'll not do it. But again, this, this, this Ezekiel 16, it comes as a warning ultimately, but, but in that warning there's this reminder of the way the Lord has so tenderly dealt with Israel. And in the language of verse 13 of that chapter, we note, Thou wast exceeding beautiful, and thou didst prosper into a kingdom. And that's the same word you have there, translate exceeding beautiful. How fair, how exceeding beautiful, and how pleasant art thou, O love, for delights. This expression here, verse 6, is, is the heart then of the book in one sense. It is, is the constant theme, Christ's delight in her. His, his, his love to just step back and look at her and delight in her. This is therefore where we must be. We must be part of the bride of Christ. God's going to make a judgment of you on judgment day. If you're not in Christ, He will not be able to say, How fair. He will not be able to say, How pleasant art thou. He will say, Depart from me, I never knew you. He will call you out for your sins. He will make judgment upon you for your sins. 
And there'll be no hiding in that day, no hiding. The only refuge is Christ. The exclusive place of acceptance is Christ. The place where you can be complete before God is Christ. Nowhere else. Nowhere else. But this is the the, the disparity then between those in Christ and everyone else. The children of men that he takes no delight in. Once you're in Christ, once you're in union with Christ, then it's not just you're, you're, you're accepted in the sense of you're just about getting through, just about getting by, you're, you're getting into heaven by the skin of your teeth. No, no, you could not be any more accepted. You could not be any more fair. How fair, how fair, and how pleasant art thou, O love, for the lights. So, we've seen the description of her beauty. Note, secondly, there's a description of her fruitfulness. Of her fruitfulness as well. Verse 7. This thy stature. So, reflecting then upon what has been said. This thy stature is like to a palm tree. Thy breast to clusters of grapes. Note here, as we consider her fruitfulness. We want to see it as manifested, first of all, in herself. It is manifested, first of all, in herself. This thy stature is like to a palm tree. Her entire stature, already observed, already reflected upon, from her feet to her head, that entire stature then is described as a palm tree. Why a palm tree? Well, there's much that can be said. But turn for a moment to Psalm 92. Psalm 92. And for those of you who are, let's say, you consider yourself senior. Note that. I didn't consider you you senior. You consider yourself senior. Psalm 92. What it says here. Verse 12. The righteous shall flourish like the palm tree. So that's to every one of the Lord's people. Those who are made righteous in Christ, those who are now righteous before God through the merit of Christ, through the work of the Spirit in their hearts, the righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those that be planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God They shall still bring forth fruit in old age. They shall be fat and flourishing to show that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in Him. So yes, there is the general application, the righteous flourishing like a palm tree, but in this idea of prosperity and flourishing, there's this directed word, a directed word that you'll still bring forth fruit in old age. It is a palm tree that continues to be fruitful. It continues to grow in its stature and its strength and be fruitful. Yes, there's a prayer. There is a prayer. There's a prayer not just for old but for young. Lord, make me fruitful and continue to be fruitful into old age. It's it's wonderful to see those that are senior that are still bearing fruit in the joy of their countenance and the manner of their conduct and their their delight in the gospel and their words of exhortation and their expressions of gratitude in the grace that is evident in their lives, the humility and meekness of their hearts, their constant delight in Christ, 
and their fruitfulness and whatever may be the limitations of their ability, of their physical ability, they still are bringing forth fruit. But the righteous flourish like a palm tree. This is a picture of flourishing. Flourishing. And God's people describe like a palm tree. And I'll tell you another thing. I can't turn to it, but especially in 1 Kings chapter 6, when Solomon's temple is described, you will find certain carvings were made in the walls and the doors of Solomon's temple. And what do you find there carved into the place where God's people are to gather and worship the living God? What's there? What's there? Palm trees carved into the walls, carved into the doors. What's it telling us? It's telling us that's what belongs in here. The presence of God is known here, but God's people, the palm trees, yes, they belong there, and that's where they flourish. In the house of God, in the, before the presence of God, meeting with the people of God is, is etched into the walls. So they should remember, they should, every time they go into the house of God, Psalm 92 comes into their mind. The righteous flourish like a palm tree. This is where we belong before God. This is how we flourish. Yes, you can't flourish without your communion with God. You can't. You can't flourish. Whatever your desires are for life and prosperity, you will not flourish without communion with God. And where are you reminded and encouraged and prompted in your communion with God? With the people of God, before the living God, in the house of God. That's not the only place. David can be in running for his life into the wilderness and still meet with God, but that's not where he wants to be. Flourishing. Christian, lift your vision up higher. Not, not in selfishness to yourself. Lift your vision to where the vision of your Savior is. His vision is that you flourish and you continue flourishing to old age. A palm tree in the house of God flourishing for His glory. And this then is, this is a description of your stature. This thy stature is like to a palm tree. Your stature is important. But what do we mean like, what, when we talk about stature like a palm tree, when you think of the whole idea of stature, what, what is it that really is at the heart of that? Turn to Ephesians 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We'll take time to read from verse 11. Christ has given gifts. And in his gift to the church, his care for the church, verse 11 says, he gives some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Why? Why? Give them jobs? No. For the perfecting or the completing or the maturing of the saints. For the work of the ministry. For the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man 
unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie and wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. What is the point? It's that those palm trees that describe, that illustrate, that point to the people of God, that they grow. They need to be growing palm trees, and they need to be strong, and all they're reflecting in their strength is that strength in Christ, the doctrine of Christ, the knowledge of Christ, the likeness of Christ, the fulfillment of the will of Christ. They're not blown about. They can't be moved. Their roots go deep. Their trunks are thick and strong. Their boughs, they're effectual to reaching others. There's this growing strength but it all centers around Christ so that, so that even every individual Christian in their flourishing isn't an independent flourishing. But every joint is supplying. There is a pulling together of each member of the body so that actually my flourishing cannot take place apart from the other members of Christ. So ministers are given the responsibility to facilitate this, to enable God's people to be palm trees that come to a full stature. I mean, there's a sense in which the, the perfect fulfillment of this will never take place in this life. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ? I mean, how does that happen here? And yet the objective is still there. The desire is still very much rooted in now. So we speak the truth in love so that we may grow up into Him in all things. This is fruitfulness. This is, this is why it must be a Christ-centered ministry. It must be a Christ-centered expression in the church. Our worship is Christ-centered. Our expositions are Christ-centered. Our service is Christ-centered. It's for Him. It's not for you. It's, it's all bringing glory to Him. And then we are like these palm trees. We have this, this stature that is remarkable to Christ. That's it, you see. Going back to Song of Solomon chapter 7, this thy stature is like to a palm tree. That's, that's his observation. He has described, she has come to know this. He's looking at the bride. She's, he's observing her and she has, she has come to this maturity. Like a palm tree. You know, the thing about trees, palm trees or any other trees for the most part, you're always wanting to see them grow upward, aren't you? And that's the Christian life, isn't it? It's, it's growing upward. We're still, while we're here, we're still rooted into this earth. And trees are, always have to be planted and rooted and still connected to this world. 
But as they grow mature, they're, they're growing heavenward. They're getting closer to their God. They're ascending into the heavens. So where, where's, where's the eye? Where, where must the eye of these palm trees? Yes, you, you palm trees here this morning. We palm trees here this morning. Where must our vision be set? Where must our vision be set? Where we're going to. It must be lifting up. This is what Paul then says in Colossians chapter 3. Set your affection upon things which are above where Christ is seated. Lift your eyes, palm trees. See Christ there. Where you look is where you go. And so this morning, if you want to flourish like a palm, palm tree, if you want to know growth in your heart, where must your eyes be? On the winds that prevail against the bows. On the threats that seem to come your way where it looks like the devil's come with a chainsaw to cut you down. No, just keep your eyes on Christ. Yes. Keep your eyes there. Yes, if you're risen with Christ, you seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth. You set your affections there. But not only in terms of her fruitfulness here, is it manifest in herself also as a mother to others. Not only as manifest in herself, but as a mother to others. Verse 7, Thy stature is like to a palm tree, and thy breasts to clusters of grapes. The stature of the church, in the stature of the church, there must be then that which will feed others. So he steps back and he looks at her stature and he remarks upon, particularly in her stature, thy breasts to clusters of grapes. That's how he likens her. He is noting then, he is noting then the organs that provide for others. Now let me say to you who want to be preachers, you are the breasts of the church, called if God so sees fit to do so, Call to feed the flock of God over which the Holy Ghost will put you and place you. And so your goal then is to facilitate the growth of God's people. And you must therefore have something to dispense to them. And what are you dispensing? Thy breast to clusters of grapes. You're giving the wine of the gospel. That is what you're giving. That's what you're called to put before the people. Feed them on Christ. Lead them to the green pastures of Christ. To the still waters of He who is living waters. It's often a grief to mothers that suffer from insufficient breast milk to feed their child. And it happens. And it's a grief to them. It should be a grief to a minister if he has nothing to give to his people. He has nothing of the wine of the gospel, nothing, nothing, nothing to share of the glories of Christ. No, there'll be no growth there. But generally also, the church is, is a mother to others. We are all, we all have our work to do here in, in imparting 
life to others. So we all must recognize this. Thirdly and finally, there's a description of her union. There's a description of her union. And to see this in two ways as we come to verse 8. First, she is held by Christ. Verse 8 says, I said, I will go up to the palm tree. I will take hold of the boughs thereof. She is held by Christ. John Gill sees here in this portion, and John Gill is very helpful in Song of Solomon for the most part, but here he sees Christ coming up to the palm tree, taking hold of the boughs thereof as a kind of examining of the church for the purpose that he may prune her. Now, there's a part in which that is certainly a ministry of Christ to his bride. And you see that. Language of John 15, certainly the, the letters to the churches. What is Christ doing there in chapter 2 and 3? But largely, He is pruning the church. He is looking at her browns. I know thy works. He, he is looking at the stature. He is looking at the palm tree. And He is making comments with regard to her. But, but I don't see here that particular application. This is a scene of gentle embraces. I said I will go up to the palm tree. I will take hold of the boughs thereof. It doesn't seem to indicate he's there to prune. As loving as that may be, and as necessary as it may be. It is simply, take, take heart in what he is there to do. To take hold. I want to take hold. Christ is holding here. The bride. It's exactly what he loves to do. He loves to hold the bride. This is our assurance so often in what we face with the up and down seasons of life. It is the knowledge he is holding me. Isaiah 41 verse 10, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Psalm 139, verse 8 and following, If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. Wherever I am, the hand of the Lord is holding me. Jesus says in John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. That's where they are. The sheep are in the hand of Christ. The palm trees are in the hand of Christ. He, he holds them. He holds them. He holds you this morning, child of God. He holds you. He has held you and brought you to the house of God that you may feast on Jesus Christ. There may have been thoughts in your mind this morning of not going to the house of God. I don't feel like it today. I don't want to be there today. I just want to just lie on. But He held you. He held you. He brought you along. And so often we feel that. We have to acknowledge it. He is holding us. He is holding us. And again to you, you preachers, you elders, there's particular encouragement to you. Christ says in Revelation 1.20, The mystery of the seven stars which thou thought sawest in my right hand, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. They're there in his hand. I'm right there. 
It's good to be there. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We're there in His hand. Hell. Yes, even a place of special communion. Elders may enjoy if they take advantage and avail themselves of that blessing. So she is held by Christ. You, you, you child of God, you're held by Christ. He comes to you. He comes, I will go up to the palm tree. I will go to my child. I will go to that one that trusts me. And I will take hold of them. That's what verse 8 is telling you this morning. He's taking hold of you. He is for the comfort of your soul. But also, not only is she held by Christ, she is helped by Christ. She is helped by Christ. Now also, again in the middle of verse 8, Now also thy breast shall be as clusters of the vine, and the smell of thy nose like apples, and the roof of thy mouth like the best wine for my beloved, that goeth down sweetly, causing the lips of those that are asleep to speak. Three things here. She has helped to dispense the gospel. Now also thy breast shall be as clusters of the vine. This flows from what we've already considered. There's a particular blessing to those in the church, however. I think here what is in mind is how this will supply, this will supply the needs of God's people. Thy breast shall be as clusters of the vine. That you, you, there will be this, this it's, in, it's in distinction from what we'll get to in verse 9, which deals with those that are Asleep. But here the breasts, I would suggest to you, are for those that are already awake. And this is, this is where even, even this, this sacrament this morning is, is part of that. It's the dispensing of gospel graces. It's the means of grace that feed the flock of God. This is what he is doing. He is helping, helping to dispense the gospel. Secondly, she has helped to delight in the gospel. What does it say? And the smell of thy nose like apples. The nose here could be translated face or nostrils. The idea may be that of the fragrance of her breath. It's hard to say, but that seems to be the idea. But why would it smell like apples? Why like apples? Go back to chapter 2. Go back to chapter 2. Why would it smell like apples? Verse 3 of chapter 2. As the apple tree among the trees of the woods, so was my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. Verse 5, stay me with flagons, comfort me with apples. She is participating in him. That's what it is. She is delighting in the gospel. She is delighting in Christ. She sees there the apple tree. She is taken from his fruit. And so her breath coming from her face is a smell, the sweet smell of the apples. The apples of Christ, the fruit of His person and His work, is emanating from her. The fragrance surrounds her head. You can't be near her without smelling something of it. You know where she's been. You know where she's been. You always know when someone's been beside a fire. You always know because they come in reeking of it. But here, here it's far sweeter. Here it is that she, she has been around Christ. She's been around the bridegroom. And that's what he's smelling. That's what he senses, discerns from her. In fact, he is helping her to give off that scent, that fragrance. That's what he's doing. He is helping her in these ways. He is taking hold of the boughs thereof. Now also, now also, we put it in that emphasis, now also because he's taken hold of her, thy breast shall be clusters of the vine, the smell of thy nose like apples. He takes hold and she, she delights in him. And this fragrance then comes from her. 
And also she has helped to declare the gospel. Finally, verse 9. The roof of thy mouth, or you might just say the mouth, maybe the palate or the, just the mouth in general. The roof of thy mouth, like the best wine for my beloved that goeth down sweetly, causing the lips of those that are asleep to speak. What's the purpose? What's the purpose? The mouth then becomes an instrument to minister to those who are asleep. Yes, and she, he is helping her in that. He is helping her to declare the gospel, we might say. She is now declaring it. She's declaring it to those that are asleep. Yes, one couple of brothers here this, this morning, yesterday they were down at a particular football game. What were they doing? They were declaring it. Some other brothers were down, street, down the street in Greenville yesterday doing the same thing, endeavoring to declare the gospel. That, that's what we're doing here. To those that are asleep. To those that aren't awake. <laughs> oh, child of God, this, this, is, this, is, this is our part. Our privilege. And all that Christ would take hold of you today. Take hold of you. Take hold of me, yes. So that we are able to dispense the gospel to those that are near us. So that we might delight in the gospel. And that fragrance emanate from us. And so that we might declare the gospel to those asleep in their sin. This is so wonderful. <laughs> why, why would we not? How, how can we not but the light this morning? We sit at this table, and this same Jesus, this same Jesus that you see in the pages of this book, oh, may God help you to see it, this same Jesus that looks upon his church and delights in her, delights, calls you as part of that body to sit here this morning, that He may take the light in you, that He may hold you and help you as one of His. Do you not need it? I know I need it. I need it. You are this morning the prince's daughter. You are the prince's daughter. Whatever else you may be, whatever else, <laughs> whatever titles you may give to yourself or titles that the world may give to you, which might not always be very pleasant, Jesus says you're the prince's daughter. You are the prince's daughter. Sit at the table, the banquet, this royal banquet. Yes, it's royal. It doesn't look very royal, does it? <laughs> it doesn't look very royal. But the royalty is not by the trappings. The royalty is by the company. And Jesus is here. He is here. calling you into communion with himself, reminding you of all the glories of him and what he has done in your life. May God help us to delight in these things for his name's sake. Let's pray. Lord, we are amazed. We are amazed. If we actually take stock and note the corruption of our hearts, we have broken thy law days without number, times without number. And yet, how fair and how pleasant we are to thee. Thank you, Lord Jesus, 
that you endeavor to cheer your bride. Thou hast cheered us this morning. Cheer us even more as we sit at this thy table. We pray in thy precious name.